So I want to uh, uh, just invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read the second half of this chapter, which I will be preaching on. thought I was going to do it last week, but didn't get to it. So, uh, starting in verse 15 through verse 23, and on the screen behind me is the English Standard Version. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Like I said, tonight I'm going to be doing part two of the sermon that I intended to finish last week, and we're going to be focusing solely on this prayer that the Apostle uh, writes down. Uh, But what I want you to write down right now, and I want everybody to try to do this, and you can do this over the course of a minute if you need to find a pencil or something or a piece of paper, I want you to write down the name of four Christians that are part of your life. Christians. I'm not talking about non-Christians. I want you to write down the names of four Christians that are really important to you and who are in your life. While you're doing that, I will continue. Last week, as we looked at the beginning of this chapter, I asked the question, how would you live your life if you were among the super wealthy? And I brought up some people that I had absolutely no connection with, the super, super wealthy. Well, wouldn't you know it that I had a close encounter yesterday. So I had the opportunity to, Benjamin and I had the opportunity to go to the Penn State-Purdue football game. If you're wondering if I'm blushing right now, I'm not. This is sunburn. This is what happens when I forget to wear sunscreen. We went to the Penn State game yesterday at the invitation of a high school friend of mine. After high school, I went to the University of Georgia, and he went to the Air Force Academy. Uh, He has been a pilot for Delta for the past 27 years or so. Um, Actually, that's not true. He flew for the Air Force for 10 years or so. So for about the last 17 years, he has been a pilot for Delta Airlines. Well... It's a small fraternity in the military, and so they keep in touch. And so at this football game, my friend, whose name is Rob, invited a bunch of 
his friends. I was one of them, but others who were part of the, his time in the Air Force. Well, it just so happened that one of the guys, I was, you know, how guys do, what do you do, you know? I'm an architect. I build stuff. I paint stuff. I'm a roofer. Uh, well, what do you do? He said, well, I fly Air Force One. Excuse me? He said, well, I don't fly Air Force One anymore, but I flew it for 10 years. The, the plane that flies the president around? Yes. He flew that for 10 years. But he retired two years ago. And I said, well, that's interesting. So are you, like, done working? It's my age. That'd be nice. Figure that would set him up. He says, no, I still work. I was like, you still flying? He goes, yeah, I fly. I work for a small management company. Oh, yeah? Who do you manage? He says, we manage five billionaires. I was like, oh, that's interesting. What's that like? He says, well, basically, I work two weeks on, two weeks off, and I fly these super wealthy people all around the world, wherever they want to go. He's flying them to build worldwide wealth, serve philanthropic causes, whatever. But so this was it, and I wanted to say, well, who is it? Um, but I didn't. And, uh, but I thought it was interesting. Here we are, we're thinking about the super wealthy, and I'm having a conversation with someone who knows the super wealthy, and he knows how they live their life. Well, how would you live your life? I want to tell you about another super wealthy person. Who here has ever heard the name Hetty Green? Nobody? Hetty Green was known as the witch of Wall Street. Hetty Green in died in 1916, having amassed a wealth, a fortune, of $100 million in 1916. Uh, by today's standards, that would be about $3 billion of her own money. But what was so notorious about Hetty was that her nickname, when she wasn't called the Witch of Wall Street, was America's Greatest Miser. This woman was so miserly, she would not boil water because it cost too much. She would eat cold oatmeal because she didn't want to boil water. She... <laughs> would look for free medical clinics in New York City so that she wouldn't have to pay. This is all, the, by the way, you can find the, all this online. I'm not making this up. One of her sons actually lost his leg to an infection because she couldn't find a free medical clinic quickly enough. I mean, this woman pinched a penny. Hetty Green knew how to make money. She knew she was wealthy. She just didn't know how to enjoy it. So I ask you again, if you were super wealthy, how would you live your life? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 is a chapter where Paul is trying to make a case that you, Christian, are super wealthy. You are wealthy. In spiritual terms, you are dripping in it. God the Father, he talks about, we looked at this last week, choo chose you, 
He predestined, he predestined you to adoption, and He accepts you in the Beloved. God the Son redeems you by His blood. Jesus forgives you. And because of Jesus and your placement in Him, you have obtained an inheritance, we read in Ephesians chapter 1. But not only God the Father and God the Son, but Paul lets us know that you're super wealthy spiritually because God the Spirit, when you believe the Gospel, sealed you. Sealed you. And is the guarantee that you will receive the full inheritance that God has destined for you. You are super wealthy, Christian. But my concern is that many Christians, and maybe Christians in this room, do not live up to the joy that the riches of their spiritual blessings ought to merit. In other words, you use other metrics to determine how wealthy you are or how wealthy you think you are. And Paul is trying to let the Ephesian Christians know that they are super wealthy, that they have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then, and un, but most Christians who are unlike those billionaires who this guy I met yesterday flies around the world, most Christians live like Hetty Green. Super wealthy and unwilling to appropriate it. They refuse to live according to their wealth. So what metrics do they use? Well, most times we think of ourselves as dependent upon our circumstances. Life's going good. I feel good. Life's not going so good. I feel poor in spirit. Most people look within for validation rather than looking up to the Lord. So Paul wants us to know, and he wrote to the Ephesians, because he wants to help them with what we call an identity crisis. That's why this sermon series on Ephesians is called Know Who You Are. It should be on the screen behind me. Know who you are. That first one was Hetty Green, by the way. <clears throat> so, tonight's sermon is going to build off of last week, and we're going to look at Paul's prayer. And basically, Paul has five points. One point of thanksgiving and four petitions. And the, the message is entitled, Know How Rich You Are. I want you to know how rich you are. Warren Wearsby says, look at the bank ledger. You need to look at the bank ledger. That's the essence of Paul's prayer. So let's look at this point of thanksgiving. Look at verse 15, starting there. For this reason, for this reason, all that he said from verses 3 to 14, for this reason, all the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul started his prayer time giving thanks 
for the Ephesian believers. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think, in, in any circumstance when you want to give thanks, why do you give that person thanks instead of someone else? Because they're what? Because they're responsible. Because they're responsible. If Josh gives me $100, I don't say to Tim, thanks Tim. No, I say, thanks Josh. Because he's responsible. Paul starts off this saying, I give thanks to God for you when I hear of your faith and your love. What's the point? If you tonight are a faith-filled Christian, if you love the Lord, if you love God's people, who gets the glory? Who is responsible for that? Who do we thank for that? We thank God. God produces faithful Christians. And I say this, and it kind of goes without saying, but oftentimes when we see people taking steps of faith, we flatter them. We say, wow, you're doing such a great job. We can do that with our kids. Keep up the great work. And, we, and there's an appropriate place for that. But at the end of the day, if anyone has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because God did that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it is because of Him that you are in Christ. Think of that. Tonight, if you are in Christ, it was not because you made the final decision. It is because of Him that you are in Christ. When you look at other believers and you see their faith, and you see the way they express their love towards the saints, you can tell them, you can acknowledge that in their life, but let them know that you thank God. Because if they really love the Lord, and you tell them, Paul Reese, I know there ain't nothing good in you, but all the good I see in you comes from what God's doing in your life. That doesn't make Paul feel bad. That elevates the grace of God that's in his life. That's what a Christian wants. So the first thing he says is thanksgiving. But then he has four petitions. The first petition that Paul has in this prayer is he wants them, or he, is, uh, he wants them to know God. Look what it says in verse, in verse 16. I don't cease in giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. <clears throat> Paul is saying using a lot of words, and again, remember that as we look at the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at it at three different levels. We started week one, we covered all six chapters. Right now we're at this mid-level, so we're sort of skimming down a little bit closer, taking a little bit closer look, but we're going we're gonna to look at this prayer in the weeks to come at a little bit closer depth. But for right now, what I want you to see is that when Paul prays for these Christians, he is saying, I pray that you will know God. That you will know God. That you will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That, that, you, will, that, there, that you will have an understanding that there is more to know. There is 
things that are yet to be revealed to you about God. And that you will have the eyes of your heart enlightened. God, I mean Paul, or God through Paul, uses this dramatic imagery of, a, of, a, of the heart, the core of somebody, with eyes that can see, and those eyes are open. You ever been with someone who just got it, the light bulb came on on any particular topic? Paul is praying that that would happen to our hearts in knowing God. Jesus said, the essence of eternal life, John chapter 17, verse 3, is what? This is eternal life, that you may know Him, know God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. The essence of eternal life is to know God. And this is our highest call that we would know God experientially through applying His truth. Now this is one thing that I love to hear. We just had the membership class this morning, and as part of the membership process, people write out their testimony. And uh, so I've had the opportunity to read everybody who's a covenant member here at One City Church and read their testimony. And one thing that I love uh, hearing, whether it's written down or hearing expressed, is when someone ha- talks about that moment. Or sometimes it's a season, it's not a, but when they got it, like, oh. And, and what's really uh, exciting is those people who were raised in church. And they, they never rebelled, they never, they never went off the, the rails. Uh, they, were, they were sort of the, the good kid. They were like... Um, uh, the whatever you know, they were the good kid, and all of a sudden one day, sometimes in their late teens, sometimes in their twenties, sometimes later on in life, it finally clicked, and all this stuff that they'd taken for granted was just like precious to them, and they came to know God. I love it so much that on November twenty fourth. We're going to have a time, it's, going to, it's the Sunday right before Thanksgiving, but we're going to have a time where we're going to have a meal and we're going to celebrate communion together, but this is going to be a time where we're going to have people share their testimonies with the church family. And so uh, I look forward to that. So Paul prays that these Christians would know God. When you pray for Christians, do you pray that they will know God? Sometimes that's what we pray for non-Christians. But do you pray for Christians that they would come to know God in a deeper level? The second thing that Paul uh, prays and asks God for is that they would know their hopeful calling. That they would know their hopeful calling. Let's look at uh, the verse there. Uh, verse 18, having the eyes of your heart and enlightening that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. This idea of calling is a profound truth that we're going to unpack in the weeks to come. But oftentimes when we talk about calling and it, and it, and it deals in the realm of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty of someone coming to faith, oftentimes it, it, is, it is left, the discussion is left there in sort of this 
theological, intellectual level. But Paul wants you and I and those Ephesian Christians to know that calling has a future aspect and that future is hopeful. That's important. In this world, in the world that the Ephesian Christians lived in, this was a brutal world. This is a world that chewed up Christians. This is a Roman Empire that disdained Christians. This was a city that got so angry at the Apostle Paul, we read in Acts chapter 19, that they tried to kill his companions because they couldn't find him. Oftentimes when people come to Christ, life doesn't get better here. And they need to have some hope. I don't know what your story is, but I'm pretty sure that since if you became someone who desired to follow Jesus with all your heart, I'm pretty sure that you can follow this trail and there have been some deep valleys. And Paul wants you to know that the end of that trail doesn't end in a valley. There's a hope of your calling. The God who sovereignly called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, He is still calling you through your walk in this world. He's calling us, and at the end of it, at the end of this call, there's hope. You know why there's hope at the end of the call? Because He's there. The One who's calling. The One whose voice that you hear. My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. And when we follow Jesus and we hear His voice and He calls us out of the self-centered, self-righteousness, when we follow that, although it may lead to some really, really hard, dark times, the end of it is we meet Jesus. It says we will see Him and we will be like Him. That's the hope at the end of the call. And Paul wants believers to enjoy that. He wants that hope to inspire you to take the next step, to, to take the next leap of faith. If you have lost everything for Jesus, But you have Jesus. Paul says you're rich. Look at the bank book. Look at all the hope you got. Would you rather have it all here and be without God and without hope in this world? Or would you like be willing to lose it all here but have hope in the end? The third thing Paul praise in this prayer. First was that they would know God. The second, that they would know their hopeful calling. The third is that they would know His glorious inheritance. Let's look at the text. Verse 18. Having the eyes of the heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this is something if you read quickly, you can kind of breeze over. Um, But this is exciting to me. Whose inheritance is Paul praying about? Who? It's God's inheritance. What is the riches <clears throat> of his glorious inheritance? What's the next word in the saints? Not for the saints. It's in the saints. Now, it is true that God, and, and, and Paul talks about it in this chapter, that God has an inheritance for the saints. But what Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians and you and I would know is that we are God's inheritance. That God has a, not a paltry inheritance, but He has a rich inheritance in us. I mean, I get so excited when I will get out of the thinking about the circumstances and the doldrums of this life and I start thinking about all that the hope that we have and that God actually wants me at the end. Have you ever thought that? God wants you to make it. So much that He's going to ensure that it happens. God wants you because you are His inheritance. You, Christian, are a treasure that God is going to enjoy for eternity. I hope that encourages you to repent of whatever trivial thing that you are putting ahead of God today. Thank God that you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you because you chose that stupid thing earlier today or last month or last year. He sees you in Christ, perfect, redeemed, holy, and He can't wait to have you. He is, and you know, you know the story of the prodigal son? We think about the younger brother and what it would have been like for him to get out of that pig's pen and start that trip back home, and how exciting it must have been for him uh, to come back home and be embraced by the Father. We, we think about the older brother who was so self-righteous, who was actually the point of the whole story, but sometimes we overlook the fact that the father ran to his son. He ran to his son because he wanted his son. Emil, God wants you. And he wants you, Trish. He wants you, Matt, Roger. He wants you, Chris. He will run to you. And repentance, when you turn from chasing after those things, and whenever you turn back from your self-righteous or self, uh, <clears throat> your self-stupidity in chasing sin, and you turn back to Him and you come back to Him because you know that He is the source of the riches, He runs. Only a God who loves runs. And I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling love, I'm feeling good. I feel kind of like one of those preachers. Can I get an amen on that? (laughs) 
When I'm feeling love, I'm feeling good. When God's feeling love towards you, He ain't doing that reluctantly. He loves you. That ought to make you feel good about how He feels about you. If you don't want to feel good about yourself for some reason because you feel like that might lead you down a path, I get that. But at least feel good that He feels good about you. And He wants you so much that He is willing to lay aside the dignity of His holiness and just condemn you to hell and me rightfully. Live in that pig pen and then I'll send you to hell. That isn't the way God treats His kids. When we repent, He rejoices. There is joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. You are His glorious inheritance. The fourth thing that Paul prays is that we would know His great power. Now, I'm not going to have time to exposit it, but the end of this petition, he goes in this sort of litany of praise for all that Jesus is, right? Verses 21 to 23. I'm not going to parse that out right now just for the sake of time because it kind of flows out of petition number four. The fourth thing that he wants um, Christians to know is that they would know his great power. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. <clears throat> now, if you were an Ephesian Christian in the year 40 A.D., 50 A.D., whenever this was written, if you were an Ephesian Christian who lived surrounded by the wealth of this opulent city that had a temple to Diana that was larger, remember, than a football field that had a amphitheater that could that was lined that had marble seats that could hold fifteen thousand people that had shops and beauty and all this opulence. If you lived in this town and uh, you turned away from that world system to embrace this foreign god named Jesus, and you. Got the, instead of having the opulence, you had the scorn of your neighbors and you had the, the, the whispers and the mocking of those people who, were in, um, who, who used to be your friends. And you knew how much you had lost in this life. And you knew that there was a chance that just like Gaius and Diotrephes, I believe his name was, were dragged into that same amphitheater in order to be killed, you would want to know that your God is stronger. Strong enough not to build a temple, not to make a lot of money. Your God's strong enough to bring someone back from the dead. And that power to bring someone back from the dead is enough to work in your heart regardless of what you're going through, 
regardless of what disappointment, regardless of what shame or scorn, regardless of how lonely, regardless of what unmet expectations, regardless of what suffering. That God is powerful. Powerful enough to raise the dead. Powerful enough to raise our dead souls to love other Christians and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And powerful enough to keep us on that path. You see, Ephesians is in many ways a book about living in the midst of suffering. Living in the midst of conflict and challenge. And Christians, whether you live in the first century or in the 21st century, you need to know that all the resources that you need are in Jesus Christ. And you need to hold on to Him. Because only He has grave-shattering power. And we'll be getting, like I said, we'll be getting into this prayer a little bit later in this series at a deeper level. But what I want you to notice here is that in this prayer, Paul never asked God for anything material. He never asked for more stuff, better grades. Never asked for anything. What he asked is what I call soul prayers. He prays soul prayers for Christians. Not that they'd be able to pay their bills. And I'm not saying that that's not a decent prayer to pray. But this, and in fact all four of his prayers that he wrote from prison in the book of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, four prayers that he wrote down, in none of them does he ask for anything material. He always prays for spiritual perception and Christian character. I'm saying that because I want you to think of those four Christians whose names you wrote down at the beginning. I want you to start praying these kind of prayers. For spiritual perception, you don't have to use the exact words that Paul used, but he also prays for Christian character. That's better than the stuff. Paul never encouraged Christians to seek more from God. He always encouraged Christians to seek God more. If that helps. I want to invite the worship team back up as I finish our conclusion. Friends, we live in a day when the church should expect to live out our days in the middle of suffering. The 21st century holds nothing about antipathy towards Christians. Certainly not over the 1st century. The early Christians saw that what they called the way incited a riot. What's it going to be? When's it going to be? When bold, authentic Christianity, Christ followers, unwilling to compromise, incite a riot in our day. Not because we want a riot, but because they literally just cannot put up with it. Over the years, I've benefited 
from hearing the stories of brothers and sisters who have chosen to suffer rather than turn away. And they testify to my soul that Jesus is worthy. I hope you believe He's worthy. So if you're a Christian tonight, I want you to do a couple things. I want you to meditate on how wealthy you are. You are among the super rich in the most meaningful sense. I want you to live boldly because of that wealth, knowing that Jeff Bezos is only one financial crisis from losing half of his wealth. Nothing can take yours away. And then last, I want you to pray for other Christians that they would know their true identity in Jesus. If you're not a Christian tonight, I want to challenge you with the fact that you cannot, everything that you have amassed, you cannot take it with you. All your possessions will perish. All those billionaires that this guy flies around the world will perish in their sin and no amount of money can buy them out of it before holy God. But Jesus Christ has died so that you can have life now, life eternal, and inheritance and hope and treasures and peace in your heart. Will you submit your life to Him? Why don't we stand and sing to His great name.